And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and today I'm joined by Seb stafford Blore. Hello Joe Devine. Hello Seb. Uh, Seb and I are delighted today that Alex is unavailable so we don't have to talk to him. But someone else is here in his stead and that's the real reason we're delighted. And that person is the wonderful, the marvellous, the athletics, Nick Miller. Hello. Hey Nick Miller, how are you? Uh, very good. Heavy shoes to to heavy shoes, big shoes to fill. But you know, <laughs> big and heavy. Because as big we all know, one of Alex's legs is shorter than the other, so one of the shoes is actually very heavy. Has a, a, a thick platform at the bottom just to stabilise his height. Uh, but no, you're right. Big shoes to fill because uh, he's a big part of this podcast. And I don't know if you, if you've listened much before, Nick, but I, I've got a quick a checklist here of things that we're looking for you to replace uh, that Alex won't be providing for us today. Are you ready? Yep. Go. Go for it. Yep. Don't make any jokes, because Alex isn't funny. So that's the first thing. Uh, we want you to be dry and to kind of miss the point of what we're saying most of the time, because that's where the humour lies, right? Okay, just bear uh, with me a second. I just need to delete a lot of notes here. Okay, yeah, yep. okay right. <laughs> Quickly deleting those notes. The other thing is I want a, a very accurate tactical analysis, and if it's not about tactics, I don't want you to talk. I'm deleting even more notes. Just kind of staying okay, on that page great. now. And the final one is I need you to, to exhibit the kind the, the kind of smugness that you only get from having a famous parent, okay? And just <laughs> basically a sense that you belong here and that it's actually kind of annoying that we're here. Uh, yeah, I can, I can do that. My, my, my father isn't particularly famous, but I can, I can certainly, uh, certainly fake that. Okay, great. Well, that's good. Uh, I think you're going to do a good job. We've already recorded it. Nick did a really good job. Uh, also, by the way, if you like other people who do really good jobs, then you should visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, where you can find all of the best writing about football on the internet available for your perusal, uh, whether you're a Fulham supporter or a, a Manchester City supporter, there's a journalist dedicated to your team there writing the stories that are important to you, getting closer to the action and the behind the scenes, and all of the stuff that you would want will be there. It's your wildest dream, theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. Anyway, on today's episode, we talk about the Manchester Derby. We talk about West Brom and Newcastle. We talk about Bayern Munich, Borussia Dortmund, a little bit of Tottenham. We do uh, Joe's Quotes and Facts Database, and that's all. Uh, so uh, thanks so much for downloading today's episode, and I hope you enjoy. I will now leave you in the, uh, the warm hands and the very, very cool embrace of Nick Miller. Okay, let's begin then with uh, Manchester City nil to Manchester United. Who saw that coming? Yeah, that's a thing no one else will have said this weekend. Uh, let's start by talking about Anthony Martial, though, uh, because clearly he's definitely a form player, right? He was uh, inspirational in this particular game, um, but uh, as I'm sure supporters of Manchester United will have seen, he tends not to show up in, in some. It's a little bit confusing. And uh, I wanted to ask you about this, Seb, because um, Cavani was obviously unavailable due to injury again. Martial started at the nine. He actually held the ball up extremely well, which isn't something that he's normally associated with doing. He seemed super confident. He had the better of Stones and Diaz, who have been this you know, centre-back partnership that people have been talking about for, well, at least since the turn of the year. It felt like his best performance of the season at a time when it was really needed from his team. It felt like his best performance in absolutely ages. Yeah. Uh, I wonder, Joe, whether part of the problem with Anthony Martial is as a body language issue. Like, I wonder whether, like, let's let's not pretend that he, he hasn't been really disappointing so far this season. That's very fair. But I wonder whether that's accentuated by the fact that he he seems quite laissez-faire. He seems sort of, uh, he doesn't have many emotional responses to what's happening around him in the game. He doesn't show visible disappointment when he's playing badly. He's not 
obviously frustrated. I wonder whether kind of from time to time we're a little bit guilty of buying into that. I don't know. Discuss I mean, but, question maybe. Mark. Well, I don't know. So I feel like what, what's happened is I've asked you a question, then you've asked me one back. I'll do the gentlemanly thing and, and answer yours, which is to say um, I don't watch that way. I know what you mean. He looks dour most of the time. I find it kind of funny. I also I found it really funny when he was substituted off towards the end of the game against City because uh, there was the 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 smallest hint of a wry little smile on his face because he must have known he, he played well right, but uh, I th I don't know I mean he he comes to the ball a lot and I think we've talked about him on this podcast before as a player who often receives the ball standing still or at least you know coming towards it rather than always necessarily running in behind which is a little confusing I guess because he has that kind of pace and that trickery perhaps. Perhaps he's been told to do that and Rashford and Greenwood or Dan James are the players that are more likely to, to run in behind. But in this game, I was particularly impressed with his strength. I haven't seen him play like that as a centre forward before. I've, I've seen the quick interchanges. I've seen that he has the skill and the, the vision and the ability to make those, you know, quick, sharp passes between himself and Fernandez or Rashford. But what he did, it, like, he shrugged off players today. He pushed Rodri away at one point in the game. He, he consistently held Diaz and, and Jones, uh, and sorry, and Stones off him. Uh, I just feel like that is, I wonder if it's just something he's learned from, uh, from watching Cavani. We have brought this up a couple of times about Cavani, and I feel as if one of the main knocks against Anthony Martial, at least whenever the why isn't he playing as a number nine conversation appears, as it periodically does every six months, the kind of the rebuttal to that is always, yeah, but can he play with his back to goal? And the answer is always no. It's just because, first of all, he's bracketed as a wide forward. So you assume dynamism, uh, carrying the ball at pace, playing on the counter-attack, all of these things, which you know he is suited to doing. But it's... Like, ordinarily, when a player learns to do something, you would kind of see fragments of it over time. So maybe, like, last week he did a little bit of the things that he did well against City. The week before, he had a couple of good moments. And then three yeah. weeks down the line, a month down the line, then he puts it all together to put a performance. But it was really unusual. And I don't I don't think it was that shocking because United have this in, in their bag, don't they? They they've have this kind of... I relate the, the Man City-Man United relationship at the moment to kind of how I feel about West Ham as a Tottenham fan. They're always there to kick you in the balls, no matter what's what else is happening in your season. They're always there to put ready to put an axe through it. But what was surprising is just the nature of it and the tone of that Martial performance is it's kind of one I didn't really expect to see him. And it wasn't really because of his poor form. It's just habitually what he is as a player versus what he was able to do on Sunday. Two really different things. Nick Miller, if you were Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, would you be almost frustrated by the performance after after calming down because you don't get that every week, or at least you don't seem to? Yeah, I mean, it's you know he's not going to play like that uh, every week. No, no player's going to, but but just you know a bit more of that. He's he's a little bit like like in a sort of encapsulation of United or Solskjaer's United as a whole in that it's the whole Michael Colleone. I thought I was out, and then they pulled me back in. They, they kind of they drop points against stupid teams, and then they pull a result like this out of the bag. And you think, no, okay, no, no this this is a you know this is a, a proper United team. We, it's the sort of United team we can all get behind. It's a similar thing with with Martial. Every he he will look um, entirely anonymous for weeks, and then he'll you know um, he didn't score in this game, but he he'll put in a performance like that where you think, ah, yeah, okay, this is why people are persisting with him. This is why he's been at United for what six years now, seven years, and you know he's kind of he it's it's always felt like he's never been the kind of the guy, but he's just sort of hung hung around as the 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 second guy. And it has it has produced just enough good performances in that time to kind of justify that. It's just about managing to sustain his career at um, one of the you know one of the top clubs. It's it's interesting, isn't it? I wonder if this will help us expand uh, a conversation into City's perspective too, because one of the things I noticed from the beginning of the game is that Martial had space and time, right? Which is something that Manchester United won't get against most teams. And so perhaps we can attribute that to, uh, or attribute part of his good performance to, towards that. He has the opportunity to play well because Manchester City are not a team that's set up reactively. Uh, and the other thing that we can 
see from this within the first 10, 20 minutes is the number of times that Bruno Fernandes was able to receive and then pass the ball, I think was more than in any of the last sort of 10, 15 games he's played for Manchester United. Because I think the first thing that happens when a team who are lower than United in the league are facing them is they find a player to put on uh, on um, Fernandes and they don't take him off. And, the, you know, they, they squeeze that central area and uh, they, they squeeze all of the space out of it and they don't allow Manchester United to, to play what might be their natural game. This just didn't happen at all in this game. And the one thing from City's perspective that that I want to ask, uh, Seb, is, you know, we'll start by saying this, they'd only conceded uh, first three times this season prior to this game. They didn't win any of those games. And against United, it felt like City just didn't have a plan B, or if they did, they weren't able to adjust quickly towards it. Uh, they didn't seem to know what to do with United's unexpected high line. They just continued to do what they normally would have done anyway and you know trying to play in the very compact space during that game is this just a case of them taking a while to adjust because they so rarely need a plan b they so rarely go behind or or is it that i suppose maybe guardiola is is, is so confident and fairly so in his own methodology that he doesn't feel that there's really any need to adjust just that they continue playing their own game and it will come good enough for them to win a league season could be a bit of both joe i remember thinking when when the penalty was given if you concede a penalty after what with 35 36 seconds in a game you wonder what that does to a team because you think right so whatever match preparation we've done the one thing we probably haven't conceded for is going a goal behind in less than a minute you may you may plan for going a goal behind but probably not under those circumstances and so if you're city it felt as if they never really recovered from that moment in the sense that they never kind of recalibrated their game plan and so with 89 and a half minutes left, you can kind of fall into the trap of thinking, yeah, we probably can just play a normal game from this point. I think that that sort of mindset seemed to manifest in a few ways. As the game wore on, I think it was interesting to see some of the things that we thought were in City's past come back and reappear, some of the kind of the blemishes in their performances. So if you look at the Luke Shaw goal, for instance, and how far he carries it before the 1-2, like that's one of those things that you probably would have found in City last season with those huge issues in midfield between you know, the midfield and the defence and the big chasms that actually we've got a, a video coming out to describe in, in a couple of days' time. But it was, it felt like it was a little bit descriptive of some kind of mental fragility. Is that fair or is that an overreaction? I don't know, Nick, what do you think? And it's, it's a point that's been made obviously quite a lot but they just because they are so they so sort of rigidly have to stick to Guardiola's plan and they just kind of don't know what to do when um things go against that plan and there is the the, the mental fragility was something that I think was talked about a lot last season and maybe towards the kind of start of this season as well particularly after the Leicester defeat last 5-2 mm. early in the season and Tottenham as well that Tottenham game was in November that's yeah. I mean yeah. I mean, I, I know That's time. I know crazy. time has lost kind of all meaning, but <laughs> that was, you know, the, the Tottenham game when you know it looked for all intents and purposes they're done and Tottenham were top of the league and they're going to, you know, um, everyone was mentally and emotionally preparing themselves for the prospect of Jose Mourinho winning the Premier League again, <laughs> which was which now seems like it's this kind of distant other era, uh, and also that you know the Manchester United were finished. Sorry, Manchester City were finished. It, it, it feels like another time. Anyway, so so in that respect, it, it, it seems odd to, to um, sort of question City's mentality given the, the run they've been on. But those sort of things were being talked about a relatively short period of time ago. So I don't think it is a sort of I don't think it is a, a massive stretch to to say that it, it could be a mentality problem. It also, also, is there a difference between league and and cup? Because this is this is like one of the things I was thinking about last night is is. Guardiola and City's mentality, let's say you know whether or not it is a problem within the league, it hasn't been such a problem that it stopped them winning championships, right? Obviously, they uh, Liverpool won the league last season, but uh, City have dominated for the last five to seven years, I suppose. 
but they haven't had the success in the Champions League that supporters will have wanted and that Pep Guardiola, I'm sure, so craves. And I wonder if that is because of this apparent inability to adapt within games. We know that across the course of 38 games, the way that City plays, particularly against teams that have no recourse against it, is going to uh, allow them to dominate and probably going to allow them to recur enough points to win. But when it's important within one specific game in tournament-style football, do you think that might be... like? I know it's, it's people looking for inadequacies in Guardiola's uh, coaching ability. It's so tempting because he's so good. But do you think that could be one? Possibly. It's also, it reminds so. me, yeah, it reminds me a little bit of, um, with apologies for bringing, you know, other sports into this. It reminds me of um, baseball teams who follow, uh, or, or, or in the kind of earlier days of um, very sort of strict analysis sort of uh, statistical analysis in that their plan would work because the baseball season is this insane length like 162 games it, it statistically averages out over the, the over the piece but then when they actually have to get to the playoffs and have these big games like you know which would be the i guess the equivalent of the champions league games these one-off kind of uh, isolated events that just doesn't work guardiola just kind of plans out the the how a team will will win the league in like some kind of hive mind com- compacted into his little bald head um <laughs> but that but then it, yeah it just doesn't quite work out in the the individual uh, individual game uh seb why didn't Phil Foden start? Because, you know, one of the big talking points of this game, as it always is, or has been more recently, has been Sterling versus Wembasaka, which is quite funny to watch because Wembasaka just seems to consistently come out on top, despite, you know, Sterling being an incredible player. Uh, Foden came on in the second half. He caused Wembasaka a lot of problems. And obviously, there's some freshness and energy involved in that. Uh, but Foden's also had a fantastic season. So I'm confused as to why he, he wouldn't start this game. Do, do, do you feel a sense of why? No, not really. I mean, I, I feel like there might be some kind of clever conditioning justification behind it, but then he hasn't played an enormous amount of games recently, so there wouldn't be no real reason to kind of leave him out of a, a game of this magnitude. One of the things about City, and this is this is one of the reasons actually why I found it surprising not uh, that, that he didn't start, is that if you look at their, particularly their, I suppose their, their front five or six, you know how those players are going to hurt you. There are a lot of very, very good footballers in that group, but not a lot of players who can hurt you in surprising ways. And and Foden, Foden is a, a variation on that. He's someone that will do different things with the ball. He's quite creative. He's got a slightly, he's got a slightly more ad-libbing style than, for instance, someone like Raheem Sterling. Riyad Mahrez, brilliant player though he is, his tendencies are pretty established in that kind of Aaron Robin type way. Even Kevin De Bruyne, like De Bruyne is a marvelous player. He's fabulous to watch. Yes, but. He does a lot of the th- the same things game to game, and a lot of them, his moments of excellence are yeah. things we've seen before, just taken to a different level. And I feel like Foden's Foden works at City because he's a contrast to that. Uh, he's a wild card. He's a, he is a little bit of a wild card. He's a wild card with a kind of um, a, a Guardiola veneer. So he's a wild card who is adapting into that system and becoming kind of homogenized over time but still with those little flourishes um attached and you saw those against Liverpool and Anfield and I don't know it's it's interesting I feel like I feel like Guardiola's teams need that individualism um, yeah freedom of expression yeah. bring down well, the collective screw the central powerpoint shut down the podcast stop recording immediately <laughs> yeah also that yeah it's, that's um, that's not that's not the it's not the sort of um, you know uh, rebellious talk that uh, we like here you know and certainly not the sort of rebellious talk that uh, Pep Guardiola likes. I actually wonder whether this was the kind of well, the, the the obvious thing that people always say about Guardiola is that he overthinks big games. I kind of I wonder whether this was the first example of him underthinking a big game because right. it was sort of it was quite a a sort of. I don't know, like straightforward team. It was, you know, back four. There were obviously, you know, Cancelo comes in field and Zinchenko to a lesser extent as well. So it's not a sort of straight four four three, but it was sorry four three three. But it, you know, that there was a holding midfielder, two kind of a couple of number eights, and then two wide players, and it just seemed like a very straightforward, very logical team 
that he he was almost treating the game against Manchester United like he was playing Fulham, which yeah. you know by 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 coincidence this is this was exactly the certainly the the, the, the same attacking six they played against Fulham earlier on in the season. There was uh, I think Mendy played at left back rather than Zinchenko, but otherwise it was exactly the same starting eleven. Um, and you, you wonder whether you wonder whether he just. It's not like he he didn't think about the game because we know what Guardiola's like. He plans these things meticulously for most of the time, but he kind of knew that everyone knew how how United were going to play. They were going to play the counter attack, try and sort of sit sit as deep as possible. the 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 early goal was you know you can't as you're saying earlier you can't really legislate against that. You can't really plan for that, but maybe rather than Sterling and Maros out wide, you would need players who, you know, as I was saying, to kind of just do something a little bit more unpredictable, to do something to kind of unpick a defence that was going to sit deep, which is where Foden and... I think, I, I agree with you, I agree with you about like the thinking and um, sort of underthinking the game. I really like that, that way of looking at it. But Manchester United play a high line. This is the thing, like, I don't think anybody knew that they were going to do that. I don't think Guardiola knew. I think the expectation was that they would sit deep and that certainly happened more as the game went on, partly just due to, I think, the pacing of the game itself. But for that first 30 minutes, United's uh, back line was really hard. It's the high, I think Gary Neville said it was the highest he'd ever seen them play. And so I think that's what one of the things that just... One of the things that confused uh, confused Guardiola. I don't don't think he would have expected that. That's right, Nick. I've slammed you down. Come on my <laughs> podcast, yeah. Come here as a thank you for coming, by the way, because we really needed you. But when you say something, I'm gonna <laughs> guess what? You talk on here, and I'm gonna tell you exactly what I think. Go on, Seb. I bail you out of a huge hole, and this is the thanks I get. Disagreeing with a point where I have slightly misinterpreted a football game. Unbelievable. Sorry, Seb. I was going to say, I, 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 that high line felt to me like an act of self-preservation. Like it was preemptive in a way that we know what City will want to do. We know where they want to exert the pressure in that opening half an hour. Let's take that op- option away from them. It's like you yeah. can beat us, but you're not going to beat us with that kind of bewitching network of passes. That like sort of that interchange around the edge of our box with a, a Sterling or a Mares or a, a Jesus slipping into space and and scoring from eight yards. You're not going to score that goal. And that's a kind of okay. We're a we're a um, we're a big outsider in this game. We've kind of got nothing to lose. The title's gone. So why don't we at least inject some uncertainty and it was take away the familiarity? It was interesting. And the way it they bold. played as well, bold. like yeah. they never passed yeah. it backwards. Like this is the yeah. other thing. Every you, you know, you you have Harry Maguire with his back, uh, his face face towards his own goalkeeper, and he fucking turns you. <laughs> like that's not something he does in other games very often. He, I appreciate he, you know, he tries to carry beyond the first line in many games, but uh, you know, cutting it around players uh, on the sidelines not something that that we've seen Man United defenders do. I think this was a specific game plan. And it worked. It was funny. It kind of, it kind of, it almost, you know, befuddled City. A city. I don't think they knew what to do with it, despite the fact that they have Mares and Sterling, two exceptionally fast players, who, if they'd worked out sooner, or if they'd had the flexibility to work out, that they could just run in behind, because certainly. Uh, uh, Mares is probably faster than Luke Shaw, right? Harry Maguire isn't the fastest player. Lindelof uh, is is played because he can pass the ball instead of Eric Bailly, who is actually fast. They could have scored, I think, if they played the ball over the top or played it in behind, but they didn't do that. They continue to try and do the same thing that they would have done if Man City, if Man United had set up with a with a deeper line. And I just I just found that to be an odd thing to watch. It's a bit like making a plan that relates to that seeing that it's different it's obvious that it's different but then just not changing anything at all it just it just it doesn't it's not a smart thing to do i don't get it anyway i'm shouting now bringing down a tone let's talk about bruno yeah, fernandez you, you did get because, a little bit shouty there. that was weird it was just it was very exciting it, i like I'm, it when I, it's good enthusiasm humans like, do a yeah. different thing humans do things against each other yeah pep i just like it when the big team loses that's all. 
And uh, I appreciate that I'm sort of insulting both teams by saying that. But Bruno Fernandes did a, did a fantastic job in his uh, post-match interview of making this seem like an ordinary win. I don't know if either of you watched his post-match interview. But he basically just said, you know, yeah, yeah it's just a normal game. We won it. Let's, yeah, we, we win other games as well. What's your point? What's your point? Um, City, have, I think, 11 points clear. Have probably won the league, right? But uh, it's just quite. I imagine for supporters, it would be quite nice to see Fernandez talking in that manner, uh, because it's something I think United have been a bit devoid of over the last six, seven years. I mean, I remember David Boyes saying, um, complimenting Man City and saying we want to play like them, and that feeling like the kind of uh, you the significant shift in the in the perception from outside and inside the the camps, right? But the way that Fernandez was talking, he felt like a, a a winner. You know, do you know what I'm saying, Seb? Yeah, I do. I, I we didn't have that on German TV, but um, I'm familiar with the kind of the trope of a, a player doing that after a big win, trying very, very, very hard not to be excited because yeah, yeah, it's yeah. the kind of thing people jump on and go, "Oh, he's just like he's got that winning mentality." Like that's what we need. We need more of that. <laughs> we which need is more of that. Kind of, yeah. What is yeah. that? It's it's like it's like he's a sort of footballer that. Um, Solskjaer has manifested from you know the midichlorians or something. Not not only that, not only that he's obviously a brilliant player and he's bailed United out on a number of occasions over the last year or so, but that Solskjaer, he's, he's I think he's probably stopped doing it. He's stopped doing it quite so much now because maybe someone's sort of tapped him on the shoulder and says, "Ollie, you're sounding slightly ridiculous. You're just repeating the same thing." But doing that kind of you know, whenever someone asks him a question, he says. This is Manchester United. Like, it's yeah, the, yes. <laughs> what are you or, talking about? <laughs> or, or if he's, you know, adding a adding a flourish. This is Manchester United Football Club. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That he, that he is, you know, he's, this was a he's guy knitted who, entirely from uh, Man United mythology. Like, yeah, exactly, yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's it's like, you know, we are we're Manchester United. Of course, we've won this game. What's wrong with you? <laughs> it's a bit um, of Cantona, a bit of Keane, bit of Cantona, a bit of Keane, um, and. You know, it's the sort of it's the sort of thing that when people say that broadly meaningless thing, he's a Manchester United player. It's that's that's kind of what they would like to think that they mean that they 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 take. You know, this 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 was beating Manchester City, and they react in the same way to beating Manchester City in twenty twenty one as they did in like you know nineteen ninety seven or something. Have you guys noticed? Um... Solskjaer's got a new thing. He's replaced that kind of we're Manchester United with a sort of a, a pale impression of, of Ferguson's anger. So whenever something comes across, comes up in the game, like a, a um, an interviewer asks him a question he doesn't like after the game or asks him a question which he thinks if he were Alex Ferguson, he shouldn't like, he kind of does this sort of, um, oh, fuck off kind of routine like because he's such a nice man though isn't he? he he comes across as such a nice guy such a a gentle mild-mannered person and then it's like he's been badly cast for a role where he feels like he has to like slag off des kelly or you know have a pop at the chelsea website writer or it's i mean it, it works because people swallow it they, they they go for it and they write articles about it and and good for him but it does My very much was feel the other like day when he said, "No, you said I didn't say that. You said it." But I mean, yeah, it's true. <laughs> it, it, it is. It's kind of. It's. It's like watching somebody learn a new personality trait. It's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, speaking of personality traits, uh, that's a bad segue. I don't know how I'm going to work with that one. Henderson, he's got a personality, but so does De Gea, and one has to make a choice because you can only have one goalkeeper on the pitch at a time. At the moment, I wondered, you know, people are saying, oh, aren't United kind? They've let De Gea go on paternity leave. And I thought, well, you know, he should just be allowed anyway. But two, so, maybe so, it's some kind of... Some paternity leaves are easier than others. I mean, yeah, yeah, I'm thinking like maybe it's kind of helping them a little bit here because Henderson has been making it obvious, it, apparently, over the last, uh, you know, couple of months that he feels that he's ready to start. He wants to play more. There's a potential, I suppose, that he would leave in the summer if he, if he isn't sort of... Uh, given the opportunity at that number one spot, maybe it's just helping that ease that situation a little bit. And it's a tricky situation. Uh, so, Nick, I'm going to come to you now to say, you know, Henderson is clearly ready to start somewhere, right? And could leave in the summer. Uh, but I think I was reading Danny Taylor uh, after the game, 
And Danny Taylor was saying, can, can you really make De Gea a £375,000 per week substitute? Also, who would buy him on those wages, even if you did choose Henderson to start? It's a tricky situation to manage. You're Solskjaer. Go, go, go. Wow. Uh, well, this, this is Manchester United. This is Manchester United football. <laughs> oh, no, sorry. That was, that, that's... Sorry, I need to update it slightly. Um, yeah, it's a, it's it's a kind of odd, it's an odd one, which is it's it's one of the very very many reasons that I wouldn't want to be manager of a um, of a big football club. Not that necessarily this is a that, that I would agonise over who is the better goalkeeper between you know De Gea and Henderson. I think it's probably still De Gea, but. But there's, I don't think there's a huge amount in it. And if I had decided, well, okay, I think Henderson's the better goalkeeper, there would always be that thing in sort of nagging me at the back of my my mind. Well, I look ridiculous if I uh, if I am putting a guy who's paid this much money on the bench when really, if if you are a you know a strong, confident <laughs> manager of a massive football club, that sort of thing <laughs> shouldn't you know shouldn't come into your thinking at all. And it's kind of you know no no one. I don't think anyone particularly. People wouldn't. I don't think wouldn't react so much if you had a striker who was paid a monstrous amount of money on the bench or a midfielder or something like that. There would there would be the kind of odd, you know, this is this is a bit weird. This very expensive players on the bench. Why aren't you playing him? But it's so it's so it's magnified so much when it's a goalkeeper. I also the, the having said all that and used kind of very uh, used saying that you know logic should be the only reason you pick a goalkeeper. I will be slightly hesitant about giving Henderson too much time because it, it, to me he has extremely strong Joe Hart vibes. In in right. as much as he's kind of good, he's obviously a very good goalkeeper, but he's got that that sort of Joe Hart attitude where he you know extremely confident and then when he makes a mistake he looks like a kind of he, he will look like a sort of lost boy in a supermarket who can't find his pride mind. comes yeah yeah i was at that game um the liverpool sheffield united game last season you can remember when he when he um it was one of the, quite a number number of games where liverpool were you know played basically like they did like they have been doing this season but then um when Aldum hit a kind of fairly weak shot and it just kind of squirted through um uh, Henderson's hands and went in and you know he had that sort of crestfallen look on his face but also with the I'm going to front up and you know um be a man about this face immediately the shrink the, the shaking adrenaline man yeah exactly <laughs> yeah yeah exactly you know you said uh, uh, uh you used the example of a child being lost in a, in a supermarket there oh, that was one of the most frightening things that could happen to you as it really was as a child wasn't it? i remember it happening to me and i'll say now on the rare occasion that if i go shopping alone i'm fine if i go shopping with my partner and i lose sight of her <laughs> I'll still have a little pang. Really? And then I have to remind myself, like, you're an adult man. Everything's fine. You've got money. You know where you live. You live over the road, by the way. You've got keys to your house. She'll be fine. Nothing to worry about. You're not lost. But I still get that little, tiny little pang. Because fuck me, that was frightening, wasn't it? You've also probably both got mobile phones. So if you do you yeah. know, lose track of each other, you can just say, oh, I'm by the oranges. You know, well, now, no reception in the co-op, by the way. So uh, that no, is, yeah, that's a it's point. a bit of a, you know, a bit of a problem. Uh, I, I used to sort that out. When I was little, I used to, um, you, this was more kind of Marks and Spencer's thing rather than supermarket. Of course it was. You, you know, those, um, those like uh, clothes rails where there were like, the four rails coming out and a sort yeah. of void in the center. I, yeah. when I was sort of five or six, I would do that thing where I would go into the middle of that and sort of hide in the void. But I, I, I think I would think I would prick around for, for, you know, a few minutes and then come out and my mum would be just stand there patiently waiting for me. Sure, but sure. in reality, she was just, you know, she was going up and doing a shopping. So She was overwhelmed by the quality of the clothes being sold exactly. in yeah, 1990s yeah, yeah. Marks and Spencers. Yeah. Well, there we go. That, that, you know, we're all lost in some ways, aren't we? Uh, and two other teams that are lost, uh, West Brom and Newcastle. So we will come back after this short break and talk about them... <laughs> 
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Oh-ho! It's West Brom nil. Nil Newcastle. I watched this as one of the three weekend games for myself. The other was also a nil-nil. Wolves-Aston Villa. By the way, we were going to talk about Wolves-Aston Villa, and then it got cut uh, from the plan uh, for reasons of boringness, um, uh, which is a shame, because I did a whole poll on Twitter and everything. But we will come back uh, with Tim Spears towards the end of the season to talk about Wolves uh, more in depth, and we'll talk about Villa probably later in this week, because they're looking a little bit ropey without Grealish. But anyway, back to West Brom, Newcastle. Uh, let's kick things off with Nick's special stat. Well, uh, I'm coming at you with sort of half a stat here because it, it, this game was obviously nil-nil. Apparently it was the first game in three years to have no goals and no bookings in it either. <laughs> uh, I'm, it's, only, it's only half a stat because I, I don't know what the, the last one of those was. Um, right. But it just kind of, I just thought it was no nice. No one does. That's the thing about that kind of stuff. That those exactly, games, yeah. They're supposed yeah. to fade away. You're not supposed <laughs> to remember them. Up to deliberately don't collect that kind of information. They just collect the date. It was just, I just thought it was nice to, in that it spoke to the sort of unique, um, like, I don't know, uh, uneventfulness of this game. Which was, I mean, yeah. it, 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 things happened, but none of the fun things happened. If that no, it was, it's, you're sense. absolutely right. Things happen. And do you know what? An uneventful game for such a big event as well, because this really was important. It wasn't like it wasn't important. It really was. Um, West Brom, eight points short of Brighton, who have a game in hand. Uh, it felt like this was their last opportunity to escape. I don't know. There's, you know, 10 games left, maybe not. But uh, it certainly had that feeling to it. It's clear that Allardyce has had some impact uh, but that just isn't. We're just not seeing it in the results, and maybe there's not been an, enough time. Seb, uh, was it too little, too late, or is it just a case of uh, the team's just not not good enough? Well, uh, having spent all of this game um, gardening with my father-in-law outside, oh yeah, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I felt like I made that quite clear on the WhatsApp chat. Sorry, Nick, your, Nick, your you silence disapproval. No, that's. <laughs> I did. Yes, I did watch the game. Sorry, I should have directed that at Nick. Come on, Nick. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is this is a full disclosure podcast. We tell you. We don't try and bluff it. We tell you the games that we haven't watched. Can't be bothered to lie. Can't be bothered. <laughs> it's, it's okay because most of the players were also gardening at the time, so it's not. It's, yeah. it's yeah. fine. <laughs> you'd be, Seb, you'd also be lying to your father-in-law on the, by, by it kind of suggesting that you had um, you know, been paying attention to this game. So I think Exactly that. Exactly for, for, the, for the best for everyone, yeah. I've chosen the easier path. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just that they ah, uh, <laughs> that's kind of that that noise. I think is how. Let me give of... let me give you this instead. Here's another because you're absolutely right. That is the only response. Uh, let me ask you specifically about uh, Ainsley Maitland-Niles because he he has been a good addition to the team, right? And against Newcastle, he looked like the most likely player to create that moment of quality that was necessary. What what do you think his future looks like? Is he just, is he just on loan, presumably? Yeah, yeah, on loan yeah, until he's end just of the season. So what what do you what do you think of his future? Because he he looks like a tidy player. That's something people say, isn't it? Yeah, he does, and it's it, it, I, you kind of fear that he's going to be one of those players who. We'll never, we'll never quite know where he, where the, the best way to use him, because you know he, he, I think he, I think he started. I, I remember actually watching him when he was on loan at Ipswich, I think, and he was, I think he was playing as a, a right winger at that point, and he didn't look 
you know particularly special at that stage. But he's he's then he's played he played right back for um, for Arsenal. Um, you know he's I, th- I think he sees himself as more of a kind of centre midfielder. Um, and this is obviously where he where he's been playing for for West Brom broadly in a kind of midfield three, and he's obviously got a lot of the the sort of qualities that would mark him out as a as a uh, you know very very uh, uh, at the very least kind of adequate uh, Premier League player, but he also has the the kind of vibe of one of those players who is at a big club but will you know. Be bought by Southampton for twelve million pounds in in the summer or something like that. Tom is, Cleverley. Yeah, well, ooh, um, harsh. Um, Cleverley always had that kind of thing where you weren't quite sure what he was for. He was just sort of he he, he would pass it around slightly neatly, but he, he wouldn't really do much. He wasn't particularly dynamic. He was just kind of there, and I think he's kind of settled quite nicely into that groove at, at Watford. Um, but. Maitland-Niles has a little more about him, I think, than, than Cleverly. He has a little bit more dynamism and, and pace, and uh, I don't know. He, he seems more more of a kind of purposeful player than okay. Cleverly, but also He's better than Cleverly. Who's he worse than? Let's play that game. <laughs> Who's he worse than? Well, most of the Arsenal yeah. team. You know that it's that like helps. The price is right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It just it, it also there was also that talk of was it last summer where he was he was, seemed to be on the verge of going to Wolves, which seemed like a a, a, a quite a good if Wolves had kind of got rid of Matt Doherty and and brought in Ainsley Maitland Niles to play there, then that felt like it was it would be more of a kind of um, a, a good fit and more of a decent career move for him. So yeah, I don't know. Is it, is I feel like I understand one. the thing though, because you know you look at um, uh, uh, David Alaba at the moment, who apparently one of the things he wants in any club that he joins is to play in central midfield, and uh, I imagine that as a talent talented player such as he is, he probably was playing in, in central midfield or at least was one of these kind of adaptable type players when he was younger. Just he's just so good that he would be good wherever you play him, and then you get stuck, don't you? You get stuck in defence. You get stuck at fullback, or in his case, you, know, you move to move to centre back at some point. Maybe the young players they're looking up to people like David Alaba and they're saying, "No, make a stand, make a stand early. Don't accept it." You know, because like the the idea that the players who who uh, could play at fullback. Uh, should also have a crossover of qualities with those who can play in central midfield. This is going to happen more and more often, isn't it? And maybe the maybe the advice is tell them to fuck themselves. Yeah, I I, I, I am I'm also sort of fascinated by the psychology of players like that, like um, like Matty Cash, for example, who you know moved as a uh, one of the best right backs in the championship last season. He was never a right back until. The the um the start of last season at, at Forest when he filled in because all all, all of the other right backs fell over and one of the alter- alternatives was Carl Jenkinson so um so you know there was there was literally no other option so but he's now he's now kind of stuck there he's now a right back he's moved to Aston Villa as a right back he was number two he's definitely a right back the other thing I, I've, I've I've just written a piece about um Omar Richards who is the uh, Reading left back who is is moving to uh, slightly implausibly moving to Bayern Munich in the in, in the summer. Oh. Um, when he when he arrived at Reading, he was a, a sort of winger slash number 10. Apparently kind of modeled his game on um uh, on David Silva and in training they 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 would do this this thing where they would purposefully put players in the wrong position so they can just gain a bit more of a, an appreciation of different positions around the pitch, look at the game a slightly different way, put them there for three or four practice games and then when uh, when they've learned a bit of a lesson they stick them back in their original position. But Richards was so good as a left back that the, the coach had just said, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll keep him at left back. You're playing, you're a left back now. This is where you're playing. And it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't really seem like he had much... Um, much say in all this. He just uh, had the misfortune of being really good in a position that he probably didn't want to play or initially didn't want to play in anyway. This is yeah. quite, a, quite a tangent from um, Ainsley Maitland-Niles. But, um, no, no, yes. let's bring it back to him and say, hey, Ainsley Maitland-Niles, you fucking do it, man. You do what you want. Don't let those people tell you to play in a different position. If you want to play in the central of the field, that's where you play. Yeah, yeah, empowered. Anyway, um, I- I've got a take on West Brom. Are you ready for this, Seb? You'll be interested to hear this because it's not often that I've yeah, got a take. Um, but here's yeah. one now. 
uh, and this is this is with particular reference to Allardyce being the manager and Allardyce being the kind of manager who tries to make things good. Yeah, uh, of particular things. I mean, every manager tries to make things good. Uh, here's a problem for for West Bromwich Albion. It's not passing or even identifying opportunities because they weren't bad at doing that against Newcastle, albeit <laughs> it's Newcastle. Uh, it's the second and third runners that weren't ever there on time. It, and it was really noticeable in this game that a, a decent pass would be played up top uh, and uh, Diania often would be able to, to bring it down and play it off or maybe uh, it'd be Maitland-Niles or, or Phillips or whoever was up there in the area and they'd knock down or they'd be pass into a little bit of space and you think if Gallagher or Pereira or Maitland-Niles or Phillips or whoever is... Uh, Two seconds quicker than they clearly are all game, they have a shot. Because there's the ball's being knocked into space. And that is something that Allardyce is supposed to emphatically drum into players. And you could just see that they were always just a tiny, tiny bit behind this happening. This is this is why I asked at the beginning, I know you didn't didn't watch this specific game, but perhaps we can rephrase the question to be slightly broader and for you to answer it very briefly, because we've spent a lot of time on West Brom. Uh, but uh, it's just not working, is it? This is always the kind of problem with Allardyce coming in, not not, not only coming into a, a, a team where the the quality of players had been it was was sort of very obviously lower than the previous salvage jobs he'd done, but that he had less time for for kind of assorted reasons than he has in in, in other jobs. He he came in later than he did at, uh, at Crystal Palace or Sunderland. Um, there was obviously the you know, compressed, um, chaotic schedule that uh, that he'll have to deal with, um, and there was always a. I don't necessarily want to kind of make excuses for him, but just just to say, well, the only reason he hasn't saved them is because he hasn't had as much time as he wanted. But that's kind of obviously a factor, and you suspect that if um, there were. He, he did have a little bit more time, some time, more time to work with players on on the you know, training pitch. Maybe then he might have improved that. He might have improved players like Maitland Niles and, and Gallagher from you know getting onto those second and third balls. But he just you know he he, he hasn't been able to. He took took this job on too late, and they were they could have seemed too far gone for him to um, make a significant impact. Yeah. Okay. Pronounced dead at the scene. Uh, Newcastle. <laughs> I feel like that's the sort of thing they'd say on uh, on the Guardian Weekly, isn't it? That sort of thing. Yeah. Sorry. I'll go back to what I normally do. Uh, quick thing on Newcastle. I wanted them to lose, not before the game, but only during the game, because if only to punish them for treating this as a game that was okay to draw, because that's what they did. And it wasn't okay to do that, even though it probably was because they did draw and it probably is okay. Also, I feel bad for them because they're missing Almiron, Samaxaman and Wilson. But the more interesting thing about Newcastle this week, and I'm sure this this has been covered on uh, other podcasts too, is the mole. (laughs) Have we heard, have we all heard about the mole? Because uh, Steve Bruce confirmed last week that he was starting an investigation into the mole. Uh, Someone leaked a row Bruce had with Matt Ritchie at training, which uh, Bruce confirmed was true, Uh, but according to the mail, he called it treason. Uh, And I just was wondering if anybody wondered how they were going to try and find the mole. I'm picturing a very much a kind of Gareth Keenan investigates situation within the new title training base. Did you not? Did you? Did you not find yourself wanting Matt Ritchie to score so that you could see, like, if he scored a goal under those circumstances in the nineties, there would have been a choreographed celebration with Steve Bruce, which kind of made gentle fun of their situation, sure, sure. and then got repeated on Premier League years forever. And Steve like, really would have thrown his all into that as well, wouldn't he? You know he would have done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd be really committed you know to it. Done. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I like to think that if Richie had scored, he would have done a sort of very over the top, sarcastic. You know how at Euro 2016, whenever Wales players scored, they all ran over to the bench, and it was this kind of great symbol of unity and something like that. I like to think that Matt Richie would do a sort of sarcastic version of that. He kind of he'd run over. He wouldn't he wouldn't have lined this up with Bruce before the game, but he'd dash over to the bench and Wildly jump into flailing, Steve Bruce's yeah, yeah j- jump into Steve Bruce's grateful arms, and he would kind of 
play along with it a little bit, so, but uh, but at the same time knowing, actually, no, he's taking the piss here. Uh, well, he's going to anyway. If he finds the mole, he's going to crush it, I reckon, old Steve. But uh, I was thinking, you know, something along the lines of the that bit in The Departed when they try to flush it out by... Uh, Calling them all in separately and telling them different things that they could leak to the see if it gets leaked to the press, like what Steve's having for dinner, or he's going to write his fourth book, or you know, just to see which one gets back to the mirror or wherever it was. I don't know. It'll it'll end up being like Lee Charnley, but by by complete accident. It'll be sure. It'll be some kind of haphazard tale of of disinformation <laughs> where he was talking to one person, but actually in the earshot of somebody else. You know, it's, we, we that kind of thing. <laughs> Or one of those classic things where you, that, you know you occasionally hear about government ministers leaving papers on a pl- on a train or something like that. <laughs> sort of but Lee Charlie talking about it really loudly on the phone on the train and not understanding yeah. how how accidentally left it on a park bench during his kind of one hour government mandated walk or something. I don't know. <laughs> Wearing a trench coat. Anyway, we've lingered too long on such a a game of such uh anyway we'll be back after this uh to hear seb talking about german football uh, hello and now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream direct tv satellite free hey frank a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get direct tv what's the little birdie was it jimmy the sparrow it's a figure of speech point is you can stream direct tv over the internet now oh sure next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people right <laughs> you mean airplanes stream direct tv without a satellite dish call 1-800-DIRECT-TV terms or restrictions apply As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Yeah, it's German football time with Seb. Uh, And Seb, you've written a lot of notes here, which uh, I can't read uh, uh, and convert into questions in my mind. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give you the floor... And I think Nick watched this game too. Did you, Nick, or did you, did you? Actually, this was the same time as West Brom Newcastle, wasn't it? Yeah, I kind of. Um, there oh, was I'm an so element of double that. screening, so um, oh, fine, I, fine. I watched. Watched. I paid half attention to it. Do you know what I'm going to do, Seb? I'm actually going to go and smoke a cigarette, and I'm, I'm going to leave you to talk about this game with Nick for four minutes until I come back. Okay. Okay, I shall take it from now. Yeah. I feel like, um, well, maybe the amount of notes is kind of an overcompensation as I as I stress my own like life circumstances, my relocation. I am cool and European now, and I want everybody to know it. But Seb, Nick, o- Seb only likes German things now. I do, I do. I'm, I'm overcompensating. Um, but this was interesting, and although obviously in an entirely predictable, um, sort of soul crushing way. But what I was going to ask you is. I found myself kind of behind Dortmund because, um, well, one of the things that they tell you when you come through the customs gate at Germany is that, you know, you, you kind of have to hate Bayern Munich. So I, I kind of got on board that train. Like, where, where are your where are your loyalties here? Well, yeah, instinctively, you, you, you would kind of go against Bayern Munich um, just because they're of the sort of merciless success for you know, since the what late sixties or something like that, and you you rail against that. I, I, I almost dislike 
Dortmund more than Bayern because they've just let me down so often. And th- this this was a sort of this game was kind of encapsulation of that where they would, and it seems to happen every time these two play each other that Dortmund start well and go turn all up and then you think well no all right well this is all very well and good but Lewandowski is going to start running in a minute and he's going to he will um, inevitably score the goals that will um, you know it, it, it was like it, it's a it's a bit like if um, you sort of you have someone on a kind of you know those um, those like long sort of bendy they they look like skipping ropes, but they 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 use the first like resistance training. Um, if you, oh yeah 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 I know what you mean yeah yeah, yeah. it's almost like um, Bayern have got Dortmund on the end of one of those and they said go on Dortmund run ahead run ahead and Dortmund run ahead and they get to the end of this thing and then they're yanked back mercilessly um, and it just seems to ha- it, you know it happens every time and it is a kind of very emotionally or, or, you know, emotionally difficult to trust Dortmund after all this time. So for that reason, I've sort of almost um, given up uh, dealing with them. And the the, the the Leipzig thing is, is I don't know. It's tricky. It, it, it's really it, it's, tricky. It is tricky. The, 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 the obvious, I mean, it feels like an obvious, obvious points to make that they are, the, the, the concept of them is pretty unpalatable, but they do have this kind of very exciting dynamic team with a very exciting dynamic and poorly dressed manager. Um, I don't know, have, have you, I know they're obviously sort of treated with much more suspicion in Germany, but have you kind of, uh, is that a, uh, just a an, an against modern football thing that is um, a view that is held by a relatively small traditional minority, or uh, you know, now that you now that you're a German expert, okay, what, what is is it a, a generally held view that they are sort of um, seen suspicious and not to be trusted? Well, I've been in Germany for 15 days, and 14 <laughs> and a half of those have been spent in quarantine. Um, but and during that telling, 12 you're hours, telling me you, you're telling me you haven't taken the pulse of the nation. <laughs> I feel like you know, like if there is a straw poll to take, it'll probably happen in the next few days. Uh, what does like your father-in-law think? No, he's he's firmly behind Leipzig. He, um, he, huh. yeah, his. Uh, we were actually watching their game against Gladbach um, last weekend, and he was very excited by Leipzig's very late Alexander Soloth winner. Um, but it's it's interesting because I, I compare it actually to the situation in British football because I was born in 1984. And I grew up in an era of Manchester United dominance. So my, my my default setting is to dislike Manchester United and to enjoy uh, their disappointments and their defeats and to see anything other than a Man United win in the Premier League each season as a kind of a positive, as something refreshing. But then within that, that can kind of lead you leave you blind to, you know, newer, potentially more malignant phenomena in football things which are less desirable so you have to put that tribalism aside and those kind of habits of a lifetime to one side um so it's conflicting what what i would say about this game though is is there was one moment which um which really summed it up when erling holland had come off with what looked like a, a badly bruised ankle and he was sat on the substitute's bench with ice strapped to him marco royce with uh was withdrawn too he just looked absolutely spent and he came down sat on the substitute's bench next to holland and my German isn't quite up to uh, to lip reading yet, but seemed to say something along the lines of "Oh, for fuck's sake!" And it kind of it was that game, you know, because it was there was never a point, even at two 0 where you ever felt comfortable with Dortmund um, in the lead or ever had any confidence in them sort of holding out. And as the game wore on, um, Goretzka and Kimmich just destroyed everything in front of them. Um, they just controlled the game so totally that you had nine Dortmund outfield players and a single centre forward. After Holland went off, it was kind of it was um, Marco Royce, um, and it was just it was hopeless. It was like waiting for the tide to come in. It was um, it was it almost felt self perpetuating because it, it feels like okay, Dortmund were short of a few players um, at the Lions Arena. They're short of Jaden Sancho, of course, um, and their defence needs a little bit of work. But it feels almost like they're battling uh, an inferiority complex and just a, a fear of what's happened so many times before. It's like um, 
Nick's a baseball fan. It's like watching the Boston Red Sox against the New York Yankees pre-2004, is it? When they first won the yeah. first World Series? Yeah, 2004. Yeah, it's like that. So over time, more and more stupid stuff happens. And there's more and more self-defeat. And there's more and more acts of self-sabotage. And that becomes the problem even more so than than the team you're facing. And it just looked like that. They just looked so helpless. It was um, mm. yeah, it was sad. Yeah. Sad to watch. I can relate. Anyway, uh, <laughs> let's... Uh, more and more self-sabotage. Uh, very briefly, um, Seb, tell me about uh, Harry Kane's goal for Tottenham. And then we're going uh, to do quotes from facts and then we're going to finish. We were going to talk about Barca's elections, but let's do that in the midweek episode because I think we've run out of time. I was just going to say about that Harry Kane goal, the, the first one he scored on Sunday against Palace. That's such a difficult technique. If you were to take me down to the park now and fire a ball into my feet and I was to try and do that, that's the technique which would most likely lead to me making a fool of myself or the biggest fool of myself. Because right. that's the one where you, you swing at it. I feel like, see, what you did there is you set up a great analogy and then you brought it down, crumbling down with <laughs> a, a very standard answer. Because the reality is, put you in any situation and you'd make a fool out of yourself. What, what I think what you mean to say yeah, but is that if you tried of, it a thousand times, you wouldn't do it once, you know? Is that what you mean? No, no, because I, you no, I, I, I was... You gave us all these stakes in your thing and then there were then there was no payoff. And you know, they they, they call that a box office uh, uh, loser. That's what they say. You're not... No. I've st- Hello? Okay. <laughs> no, no, you see, so, the, see the thing is, is, you've completely misread Give me the payoff. how self-deprecating I'm willing to be. Because Give me the, if you say payoff. one a thousand times, then you're kind of saying, well, I, you know, I, I, I could strike... No, no I'm saying you wouldn't do it in a thousand times. No, no, I, I might do. I was a decent footballer. Are you? I would swing, miss, and it would hit my standing foot, and I'd probably fall over. Maybe my shorts would fall down too. But my point being, well done, Harry Kane. Nice it's technique. A, it's a sort of goal that I, I think would be. It's the sort of technique that I would that I would definitely not be able to pull off. But also the sort of technique where it, I would consider it. Let's consider it most. I, most likely that I would pop my hip out while, tr- while trying to... <laughs> See, there we go. That's the payoff. Seb, that's what you were looking for. Is What, what, what Nick's done there is he's taken your uh, your stakes that you built, and that's, they were good stakes, don't get me wrong. It was a nice setup. And what Nick's done is he's shown you how to finish, okay? Because that's that's how you do it. You pop the hip, yeah? That's, re- that's a real problem. <laughs> You've got to go to the hospital if you pop your hip out. That's a real, like, you potentially life, life-lasting consequences to a hip popping. You make, you make a fool of yourself every day. It's not, there's no, that's what I'm saying. You, just, you have to balance the payoff to the stakes that you set. You fail to do so. And if you don't try harder, I think next week you'll find it's Alex, Nick and I on the TFO podcast. Like... Yeah. This is now less about the analogy and more about your like day-to-day attempts to grind my pride away. It is. Is it working? <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Good. The, well, the we other can thing move I, on then. The, the other thing I liked is that so Kane's first goal was the sort of technique that I would never be able to pull off. The second goal, it, it, it was almost exactly the sort of thing I would do if I was presented with a header in a football game because it's he sort of he sort of misheaded. So it. deliberate. Yeah. Well, yeah. With 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 Kane, you think well that is the kind of is deliberate. Or if it wasn't deliberate, it was because he sort of misheaded it down because I don't know the ball dipped in mid-flight or something like that. Uh, but if it was me, I would have done exactly the same thing because I would have had my eyes closed or I'd been scared of the football coming up my face. Um, and so, but 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 it was a sort of thing that that just for a minute you could feel sort of you could relate to, you know, one of the best footballers in the world, this kind of elite athlete who uh, can do things you could never even dream of. But just for that one moment, you think, no, I, I, that's pr- probably probably exactly what would happen if I was in that situation too. It's just that you know he is probably doing it for slightly different reasons other than you know lack of talent and pure incompetence. Indeed. When you used to head the ball, did you? Um, it, I, I never learned not to do this, but instead of actually using your neck to head the ball, you kind of just push your face in the vague direction of it and hope it hits you in the right part of the head. Yeah, that yeah. was my heading technique for yeah, about ten no, years. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Quite a decent footballer. Anyway, we'll be back after this to talk about uh, well, to do Joe's player quotes and facts database. It's Joe's quotes and facts database. 
Yes, that's right. Welcome back to the database. And today, uh, because we didn't get a chance to talk about how Fulham beat Liverpool, ah ha 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 ha, uh, I've p- chosen a few Fulham players to do for the uh, for the database. The uh, the first now, listen, Nick, just to uh, inform you, I know you you haven't been on this podcast before whilst we've done the. The database, let me just tell you about it. It's a great idea, yeah? It's an idea pretty sure no one else has ever had. And that idea is just to pick every player over the period of a season and give a fact about them and something they said, yeah? It's really smart. No one's ever done it before. And so here we go. The first uh, player is uh, Kenny Tete. Kenny Tete. Uh, no, by the way, none of these are that funny. Kenny Tete, uh, the fact about him is his father, Miguel Tete, had uh, relocated to the, uh, to the Netherlands at the... Hang on, wait. He was a former European heavyweight kickboxing champion who currently works at the Bulldog Coffee Shop on the uh, Leidersplein in downtown Amsterdam. There we go. Uh, former European heavyweight kickboxing champion, Miguel Tete. And uh, Kenny Tete's quote was uh, when he was asked in his first interview after joining Fulham... How did he hear about their interest and when did he hear about it? He said, I heard two weeks ago. I heard Fulham, Premier League, and I was bowled over. So there you go. Not sure if he was bowled over at the fact that Fulham were in the Premier League or if he was just very excited to be joining. Can't tell. Michael Hector. Michael Hector. Michael Hector is the son. There's a lot of famous fathers in this section. Michael Hector is the son of former Essex cricketer Pat Hector. And I like that because I think Pat Hector is one of the best names I've ever heard. Pat Hector, Pat, that's not the name Pat that's Hector. not the name of an athlete, is it? Pat Hector. That's it's really not. Yeah. That's kind of no. it's, it's your dad's mate who works in insurance or something like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah solid. Yeah, well, it's yeah. a kind of like a, a farmer with a bad attitude. He's been right. sort of ground down by life. Pat and Hector. It's just really well anyway. Yeah. Who was yeah, Ex- Essex cricketer, Pat Hector. So well done to Pat. Uh and uh Here's, uh, again, not not hugely funny, but uh, Michael quote tweeted a video of uh, Matt Hancock being asked why he didn't back free school meals during the holidays before Rashford intervened. Uh, And he said, uh, whilst quote tweeting it, he said, this sums up the government. This Muppet was quick to point the finger, but never take responsibility for his actions. Clown face. And uh, it's not that funny, but also, you know, fuck Matt Hancock. Anyway, that's the end of uh, Joe's uh, Facts and Quotes database. And... um, that's also the end of the podcast. So I would say uh, to Nick, Nick Miller, the Miller man, the Mill man, the Dr. Mill, Miller the killer, uh, thanks so much for coming. It's been a pleasure to have you here, and you were a very adequate replacement for Alex today. That's all I could possibly hope for, to be called adequate <laughs> by Joe Devine. When you set your sights low, you often meet them, and that's what my mother told me. Uh, and Seb, thanks so much to you, as usual, for really being a great sport, yeah? <laughs> Just doing your best. Because if there's something I admire in people, it's just that they keep trying, even if they're not that good. Just (laughs) refuse to accept failure. Just carry on. Never let your spirits drop. Just get on with it. Okay. (laughs) Thanks to producer Adonis for all his production support. And uh, we'll be back on Friday with another game relevant podcast. Uh, but for now, au revoir, Tipos. The Athletic.